Those of you who are here, let's take our Bibles. We're headed all the way back to the book of Daniel. We're headed for Daniel chapter 7, and then we're going to jump to Revelation 17 and focus on those two texts. What are some of the specific judgments? This is no game, okay? This isn't a game. What are the, some of the specific judgments that happen in the tribulation period? They're the seals, the vials, triumphs. Famine is one of them. Okay, there's famines, there's war, pestilences, earthquakes. What's that? Great amount of death. Okay, any others that you can think of before we get them up here? The sun, the solar upheavals, water turns to blood, fish die, sores on people, scorpion-like attacks for five months, persecution of believers. That's just a little bit. Okay, there are seven sets of judgments. They somewhat overlap and some are parallel in their, in their timing. And yet there's 21 different specific judgments that God is going to say are going to come upon the earth where normal things are intensified, including the wars, the famines, the pestilences, things like that. Now, in that last period of time, which we've been talking about in this section of our end time study, we're talking about the tribulation. We made these observations that this is the uh, last seven years before Jesus comes back. It is the most horrible time in human history, and we've talked about some of those events, some of those situations that occur. Now, what we're talking about is we gave you this map chart last week. Again, you can pick up some others. Go on the Internet and look for dispensational charts of the, uh, of the end times, and you'll give you this type of a, of a chart. And uh, we have the uh, first three and a half years is peace for Israel. Second three and a half years is not peace for Israel. But as far as the Western world, say, the United States, if it's functional during this time. It's going to be really, really devastating all seven years. Now, what we've been focusing on and what we've talked about the last couple of weeks are some of the characters there. And one of the characters we're talking about is Antichrist. He is described in depth in several passages. Last week, we looked at the passage from Revelation 13, read it through and started talking about it. Let's go to Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, he's going to give us a little bit of information about this fella. And we're going to jump... Um, jump around in this. And so Daniel 7, give you a little bit of an idea. In the first part of Daniel 7, he's talking about the major empires that are going to be taking place in the rest of the, of the ages, as God calls it. You have the empire of the Babylonians. You have the empire of the Medo-Persians. The Greeks are talked about. Then down in verse 7, he starts talking about a fourth beast. This fourth beast is dreadful, terrible, strong exceedingly, has iron teeth. It devours, break in pieces, stamp the residue. It was different from all the other beasts, and it had ten horns. And so from that, okay, and that, as many of the Bible scholars conclude, that's Rome, but then there's a break here, and we get an idea. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and mouth speaking terrible things." Then he goes on, talks about how these, these uh, are cast down by the ancient of days. And uh, so, verse 15, I was grieved, Daniel says, in my spirit and amidst my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. And I came near unto one that stood by, and I asked him the truth. And he told me, made me know the interpretations. The great beasts which are four, the four kings which shall rise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom. Then I wanted to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, whose teeth were the iron, nails of brass, which devoured, break in pieces, stamped the residue with his feet. 
and the ten horns that were in his head and of the other which came up and before whom the three horns fell. Even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. I beheld in the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them until the Ancient of Days came and the judgment was given to the saints of the Most High and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. He said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom upon the earth, which will be different from all the kingdoms, which shall devour the whole earth, shall tread it down, break it in pieces, and the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first, and he shall subdue three of the kings. He shall speak great words against the Most High, shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change the times and the laws, and they shall be given into his hands until a time times, and a dividing of time. Add that together. One, two, that's three, and half of that. Three and a half years. But the judgment shall sit and shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole earth, the whole heaven, excuse me, shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. So he's giving us a description uh, a, a preview that he will build upon later on about this Antichrist. And so in this, in this section, he's given us some information. Second Thessalonians will build upon it. Revelation will build upon it. Let's, let's go back to where we were last week. Okay, what we learn about this is, is Antichrist is a real person. We learned that he's empowered by Satan. We know he's a Gentile from the Gentile portions of the world. He is spiritually corrupt. Okay, we talked about all these, gave you a lot of this last week. He's ruthless, he's cruel, he's superior to most men. And we pointed out in areas where he is far superior than most people, his appearance, more stout than others. We talked about his speaking skills, his oratorical skills, his military prowess. He's able to make war, nobody's able to stand against him. His ambition is far greater than most people. He even thinks to change the laws of nature as far as the times and those, you know, the, the datings apparently. He's highly intelligent. He's got great power, great political skills. And so using all this, he's going to come to a point where he captivates the entire world. And people are wondering after him. Now this is Antichrist. This is the one who will rise up, especially in the second three and a half years, and become the world ruler because people will think he is invincible. Now, to give you a chronology of this man's life, to go through texts on all these, that, these other texts that we looked at, uh, we mentioned already Daniel 7, Daniel 11, Second Thessalonians 2, Revelation 13. You combine them together and you get his future story, that he becomes a leader of a ten-nation confederacy that's in the ancient Roman Empire, the European Empire. He achieves this goal of becoming the leader of this ten-nation confederacy by usurping power over three of those national leaders. He then he makes a treaty with Israel, the seven-year treaty, so as to protect them. He gets into a series of conflicts with other world leaders. There's the king of the, the uh, north. There's the king of the south. There's some conflicts that will take place. And it's all vying. He's going to help Israel. In the middle of the tribulation period, what happens is Israel is attacked by the king of the north and the king of the south. Again, we mentioned last week, if this were modern day, Russia and the Arab alliances would come against Israel. And Antichrist has to defend to uphold his portion of the treaty. There will be a battle. And as a result of the battle, 
Antichrist will suffer a mortal wound, a deadly head wound that's talked about in multiple passages that we looked at last week. The win- so after it's, it's done, Antichrist is slain. Israel's somewhat subjugated by the Arab alliances with the Russian alliance, if it were happening by today's politics. Then what happens is the king of the north, if that's modern day Russia, will continue to head south and attack his former allies, the king of the south. And he will, de- he will be defeating them in battle so as to be the sole last man standing. And what happens is the king of the north hears of strange tidings back in Jerusalem. Some of this is detailed in Ezekiel 37, 38, 39. And so apparently Antichrist recovers from the wound because it's talked about in several texts that he recovers from his deadly wound and he is back to life. And so the king of the north will return and start heading back towards the great city Jerusalem where he hears of this strange tiding, which would be Antichrist, coming back to life. And all of a sudden, hailfire comes from heaven and destroys the army of the king of the north. And as a result, you have basically the king of the south is defeated, the king of the north is now defeated, and the last man standing in that region of the world is going to be Antichrist. This gives him the opportunity now to be able to become the dominant world power. There's one more king, the king of the east, that doesn't come into play until the end of uh, the, or until Armageddon, towards the end of the tribulation. So he's the last man standing. And, it, and, and I, I don't mean to be silly about this, but it, everything goes to his head. He's defeated all of his enemies. He has come back from the dead. He is empowered by Satan, where special power is given unto him. So he declares himself then to be God, breaks off the treaty with the Israelites, establishes himself in the temple, according to Second Thessalonians 2, and wants people to worship him because he's God. He's come back from the dead. He's conquered death. He's conquered everybody else. And so this is the time that he's declaring, I am the God. You need to worship me. Everybody needs to follow me. And his, um, his cohort in crime, the false prophet, is going to put in a political system in play, a monetary system, that everybody who buys and sells, he's going to control their religion, their finances, every part of their life. This is when in that second half that they, people will have to get the mark of the beast the 666, in order to buy and sell. And so you have this whole thing taking place. Now, Revelation 17 picks up about this time. Revelation 17 is one of those passages that many people say it's too difficult to understand the book of Revelation. I want you to go there. And I want you and me to take this morning and look and say it's not that difficult if we keep all the pieces in place and if we understand that there is, there is illustration being used But he's talking about real events, real people using figurative speech. And if we keep it in the context, it is not that hard to understand this passage. But you read verses like this. You read in Revelation chapter 17, verse 10, that that throws us when we first read it. There are seven kings, five are fallen, one is, the other is not yet come. When he comes, he must continue a short space, and the beast that was and is... Even he is the eighth and is of the seven and goes into perdition. And you go, what is he talking about? It's not that hard. It's not that difficult for you to figure this out. If you just pause and say, okay, let's, let's get the whole context of this text. What he's talking about in Revelation 17 are three major characters that are engaged in the tribulation period about the middle of the tribulation. 
Because if you go back to chapter 16, he's talking amidst about some of the different judgments that are falling. Some of them upon the capital city of Antichrist, upon the city of Babylon. And he's not explained that before, so all of a sudden chapter 17 is a parenthetical statement. It's giving us information about what is this empire of the beast? What is his capital city, Babylon? Where, how did this come about? So chapter 17 gives us an idea about the middle of the tribulation, how Antichrist came to such, such power. And it gives us some very specific details. Let's catch up. Let's, let's kind of break this down this way. And I think this might be the easiest way. There's three characters. One is a harlot. One is a beast. And then the other is, is uh, the ten-nation confederacy. So let's just look at the verses that talk about the harlot. That's mentions. And then we'll, let's read them, give some thoughts, and then we'll come back and make some application or make some solutions here. There came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying, Come, come uh, unto me, come hither. I will show you the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many waters, or the great harlot with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me into the spirit, in the spirit into the wilderness. I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple, scarlet-colored, decked with gold, precious stones, pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of other whores or harlots, the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And what he's talking about is he's awed by her, her uh, appearance. He's not looking and saying, oh, this is wonderful. He knows this is bad. But he is amazed by the power, by the display, by the majesty, if you would. And the angel said, Wherefore did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. We continue reading. The beast that you saw was, is not, shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, go into the perdition, and they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was and is not, and yet is. And here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are seven kings. We read that portion. Let's go to verse 12. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind. They shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. For he is the Lord of lords, King of kings, and they that are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. And he saith unto me, The waters which you saw where the horse sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, tongues. And the ten horns which you saw upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, shall make her desolate and naked, shall eat her flesh, burn her with fire. For God hath put it in their hearts to fulfill his will, to agree, to give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which you saw is what? It, what, he gives a, gives a description, what, or definition. Who is it? What is it? It's a great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Okay, now don't take this passage and say, okay, every verse is chronologically in order. He's giving us details. He gives us some chronology, but he jumps out of the chronology. So let's just break it down and say, okay, what does it tell us about the harlot? The harlot represents a great city. We know that. 
which reigns over the kings on the earth. So it's a powerful, influential city. Remember, we're at the middle of the tribulation period. We also know this. She sits upon many waters. He's described that saying that it's many different people. She has worldwide influence. So it's a city that has worldwide influence upon peoples and governments. Her clothing is purple, scarlet, gold, precious stones. What's the impression or the indication? Is this, this city has great wealth, tremendous wealth, okay? That she's an extremely wealthy city. She has a golden cup in her hands that's filled with abominations and filthiness. Okay, so we know what that means. That means she's a very corrupt, very worldly, down and dirty type of an entity. Whatever this city is, whatever this organization is, whatever, you know, whatever this influence is, this institution, whatever it is out of this city, it is one that is wealthy, it is one that's worldwide influence, and it's extremely corrupt. Very corrupt, down and dirty, gets involved at times with filthiness. Okay, let's keep on going. Let's give some descriptions. Okay, she's riding upon, the passage says, a beast with seven heads, ten horns, the same number that has been given in chapter 12 and chapter 13 about Antichrist and Satan. So obviously, if she's involved with a beast with a similar appearance, there's got to be some type of association here. She's closely aligned with them to some degree. She's aligned with, with evil. She's aligned with Antichrist and, and uh, false religion, false worship as far as following after Satan and Antichrist. We know as well, something else that we go on. She's involved with their lies, their false beliefs. She's killing of the innocents. It talks about killing the saints, the blood of the martyrs that we read. So in essence, it's anti-God, whatever this is. She's called these terms. She's called, uh, remember, Mystery Babylon. Now, when you throw out Mystery Babylon, throw out that term, remember what that means at the time that they're writing that this is something that is different from the Babylon of the Old Testament, something that they haven't seen before, something they don't exactly understand and know about. It's a mystery. The mystery has the idea of something not revealed in its entirety. And so what do you have here is uh, Babylon, the, whatever this is, it's unknown to John at the time of that he's writing. This isn't something he's familiar with. This isn't something that he sees going on at his age in his time, that it's functional. It's going to be something that he still he doesn't fully understand. As well, remember that Babylon, when the term is used, doesn't always mean the exact site of ancient Babylon. Uh, Peter uses the writing. When he talks about the church in Rome, he calls it you know, the ancient Babylon. And so in the New Testament era, they might call a very, very important city, they might equate it to Babylon, which was one of the most influential cities of all ancient time. And so Peter referred to Rome as very similar to Babylon in that it was very, very, very uh, predominant in the ancient, ancient world as a city. And so we have as well that it is one of a couple different possibilities so far we can throw out. It is ancient Babylon restored, different but the same, or something very much like it that had a lot of similarities to ancient Babylon in its influence, in its wealth, in its corruption. 
And so it's some major, major city known as a city that has tremendous influence around the world. That's, that's what we've got on the mystery of Babylon. What does she do? Okay. We know that she commits fornication with the kings of the earth, which means that she isn't faithful to her original calling or, or um, her promises to, to these different kings. So she has either broken her vows with somebody else and or she's breaking her vows with these kings. So she's, she's allied with political leaders to some degree. Whether she's faithful to them or she was, ally, was supposed to be faithful to somebody else but is now the political leaders. We're not sure exactly which one, but it's one of the two. What we know as well is she makes the inhabitants of the earth drunk with her wine of fornication. Okay. The idea here is that she's influential. She is misleading populations, a large amount of peoples around the world to, to uh, basically, if I can use that, that bad terminology, if I can use that, there, she's making a lot of people drink her Kool-Aid. Okay. That reference to those cults that you know, use the suicide and they, everybody drank their cup of their cup of Kool-Aid to take their lives. She's doing this in, the, in her, in her um, sense of many people are following her. Many people are drunk with what she is saying. And she is definitely killing many of the believers in Jesus Christ. So, who is this? What is this? Okay, well, let's keep continue. We know that the passage says she's going to spawn a number of similar institutions. Similar um, living organisms, if I can use that, that are doing the same thing she's doing. She's going to propagate a lot of others who are going to do the same type of thing. We go a little bit further. From her, as we already mentioned, other entities will come that do the same thing. She'll be hated and then destroyed in time by a group of future world leaders. The ten will hate her. The ten world leaders are going to work against her at a certain time in history. So up to a certain time, they're, they're tolerating each other, they're working together, but they're going to come to a point where they say, that's it, we don't want anything to do with you anymore, and it's going to become very vicious. Okay? So up until the middle of the tribulation, there is something functioning that is worldwide, that is um, not faithful to the original calling, that has spawned another, a lot of other individuals, institutions that aren't faithful as well. So we wrap up and just say, okay, let's, let's get to where she's not faithful, um, known to be a city, we corrupt and very rich, persecutes true believers, political, though not claiming to be political. Okay? This isn't her original calling, is, is supposed to be something different, but she's very political after all. Has worldwide influence, looks a lot like ancient Babylon. Tremendous similarities between ancient Babylon and this entity. Spawned other systems or, or cities or entities the same way. And it's post-New Testament entity. Whatever this is, it came after the New Testament era. Okay, After John has done his writings. So our questions are, what could this be? What, ki- what type of entity is this? What type of individual that has worldwide influence? I'm going to suggest a possibility that uh, may offend some, but it's still going to suggest it. Okay, at this possibility, this is referring to a worldwide religious system. In fact, he talks about that the, the Antichrist can't come until there's a ap- great apostasy. 
Okay, and so we read about that in Second Thessalonians 2. I'm going to suggest that this is one of the leaders in apostasy around the world. That this religious entity that has a religious calling to be faithful to God has become very political and is corrupt and is very rich and is not teaching the truth and is involved in some down and dirty stuff. Okay, could this be a religious system that comes out of a major city that is even around the world today? that has spawned multiple other entities that will be used by Antichrist in future days to help him consolidate his world power up until the middle of the tribulation period. Okay? When we say today, and I'm not saying this is the exact case, but this is a strong possibility. When we say today, Rome, is, do people's minds go to a religious entity? Yeah, yeah. And so here you have the possibility because what church is there was not what was designed originally where the church of Rome was, what was written to the church of Rome. What is there today is definitely different than what Paul wrote to when he wrote the book of Rome. It's not preaching the gospel of you must be born again. Is there some down and dirty stuff that goes on behind the scenes? Yeah. Is there money involved? Is there worldwide influence? Has there been trying to be worldwide political influence coming out of Rome? For generations, for generations. So we can't deny that that's a strong possibility. And so what happens is, and again, I leave it with a question mark because this is semi-open, but this sure seems to be this is the case, that we're talking about the religious organizations that claim to be Christian but aren't true to the Word of God. And so what happens here is he goes on, he talks about another affiliation, another major character, the beast. We read about the beast already. This passage says the beast is seven heads, ten horns. Okay? We already alluded and made sure that you understood that that's the same as what's described with Satan and with Antichrist. Okay, in previous chapters that he's talked about, okay, so whatever this beast is, it's, it's very similar or the same thing as these two. Okay, but it's now given in a different setting. It comes out of a bottomless pit, something that's demon-enabled, something that's obviously very evil. It is called perdition. Okay? Same thing as Second Thessalonians chapter 2 calls the Antichrist the son of perdition. We know as well that it provides support for the harlot for a period of time. They work together. The harlot's riding on this beast for a period of time, taking advantage, one supporting the other, working in harmony during the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. And that would make a lot of sense if these entities are what we think they are. The people on the earth are going to marvel after this beast. Now again, Revelation 13 has already given us details about this person that the world marvels after and gives a lot of details. It says that this is the beast that was is not, is to come. What character in the, Revel the book of Revelation was, stopped being, and came back into being? It's Antichrist. Antichrist who suffered a deadly wound, died, and then does what? Resurrects. Okay? That he was, he isn't, but he's going to be again. Okay, the same thing that he's building upon in other texts. The beast that existed comes back to life. The same thing that we talked about in these other texts in describing Antichrist so far. So we're going to make the conclusion this is the same description as either Satan or Antichrist, and Antichrist is the one 
that is described as he was, is not, and is to come. So you have this religious political system working together, closely aligned with Antichrist. And at the moment that this text is talking about historically, okay, it says that at this moment, Antichrist is not. So this is giving a description of what, what specific thing has just happened. Antichrist has, he's been killed, okay? He was around. These two, the, beast, uh, the harlot and Antichrist, work, work, work together. All of a sudden, he is not. This is, that, this is in the middle of the tribulation. He is dead. It's giving us information of what happens when he dies. When all of a sudden a leader is gone, what is going to be, what, what do people run to do? What's the usual situation? A powerful leader dies, what happens? There's a vacuum. And what, what happens? People try to come in and, okay, I'm going to become the new leader. That's what this is all about. This is telling us about the, the major world kingdoms and the fight that is going to take place for power in the middle of the tribulation period. Antichrist has died. He's been fighting wars. King of the North has beaten him. He is, is not at this moment. His ally being that religious system, that corrupt system that is filled with fornication, rich wealth, is going to try to usurp itself and become the world power. But the problem is... She, the whore, is hated by who? By the ten kings. The ten kings hate her. We already mentioned that. And so what's happening is it's trying to tell us, this text is trying to tell us, how does Antichrist become the sole ruler? How did he get rid of his ten kings? How does he get rid of his associates? The ten kings in this text are this. The ten kings are the horns from the beast that Daniel talked about, that Revelation has talked about. They will, when they see the harlot take control, because Antichrist is not, the harlot will usurp itself and say, I am now taking the place of Antichrist. But according to this passage, the ten kings will react and say, no, you're not. We're not going to let you become the leader. We're not going to let you become the world power. You're not going to you take over for Antichrist. They hate her. They're going to strip her, destroy her. They're going to take her off the scene. Why? God's moving. God's trying to bring this all to a head. They will take control of the kingdom, the text says. We already read the text. You can look at it again. That these are the ones that take the ten horns they saw. They hate the whore. They will make her desolate, naked. She'll eat her flesh. God will put this in their heart to fulfill his will. They will give their kingdom. It says in verse 17, in other words, they take control of Antichrist's kingdom. They've got it. Remember, remember, there they are. They're, they're gonna, they're, the Western world is leaderless. He's been killed. They're going to take over the kingdom. And what do they do with it? Well, it says they rule briefly for just one hour, just a short period of time that they're going to rule. And uh, they choose not to keep their power. Instead, they will turn their power back to the one that was, is not, but will be again. In other words, when Antichrist comes back from the grave, these ten leaders will do what? They're going to give the kingdom to him. They're going to give all the power back to Antichrist. And so Antichrist, think this through, Antichrist, who has had political alliances, religious alliances, they're gone. 
He doesn't need those. He, you know, to get to his power, he's been playing political games. He doesn't have to play any more games. He doesn't owe anybody any more favors. They've been destroyed. The worldwide harlots been destroyed. The ten kings have just given him everything. This is how he comes to ultimate power. This is an important text because in our world, we think of somebody having ultimate power, but at the same time, there are checks and balances to ultimate power. Right now, are there checks and balances against Russia? Yes or no? Are there checks and balances to the President of the United States? Yes. Even, even right now, would, would we all of a sudden as a nation say, oh yes, we want to have some foreign leader take over the power of the United States? No. There's got to be a reason why the world will all of a sudden follow after this one person. And this is giving you the political background, giving you the ideas of what happens and all the intricacies of what's going on. And so what you have is this is all happening until God's words be fulfilled. That is, until the end of the tribulation, the beast that is, Antichrist, will have received power. He's wiped out the come back to life, wiped out the king of the north, king of the south has been wiped out. His political allies, the uh, corrupt church, that's no longer here. He, the ten nations, leaders of the ten nations, they are so overwhelmed by him, they easily succumb. He is last man standing, literally, without checks and balances. This is how he gets to be worldwide dictator without having to be careful politically after that in any way, shape, or form, and can declare himself to be God. These, um, these ten nations will support him, and they will, they will follow him. They will even follow him into war against the Lamb of God, which is Jesus Christ, but they will be defeated in battle. So he's given us a lot of this, this idea of what's happening and how Antichrist comes to power in the last three and a half years all the way up to Armageddon. But verse 10 is what throws people. When they read verse 10 and they go, oh my, seven kings, five are fallen, one is, the other is not yet come. When he comes, a short space. The beast that was and is not, even he is eight, he is one of the seven. And goes into, and you, people go, oh, that just doesn't make sense. Yes, it does. It makes perfect sense by biblical prophecy. He is, in biblical prophecy, we are told multiple times of major empires in the world from God's point of view that there was eight of these major empires that are going to be earthly empires until this, there's seven earthly ones until, uh, I'm sorry, eight earthly ones until God sets up his kingdom. Daniel was told about four of them, yea, five of them, was given details. And so in the book of Daniel, if you go back and remember that Daniel talked about this in chapter 2 and chapter 7 about the great statue, the different beasts, and he gives us details about these different major, major world empires. And we can go through and say, okay, it makes perfect sense. He was talking about the head of gold being Babylon. The uh, silver, the, the torso era, era, area was Persia. The thigh area was Greece. And then the legs and the feet that were mixed with clay, that's ancient Rome and then revived Rome. Let, let, let's see if I can do this this way. Ancient Babylon... Okay, of these eight different kingdoms, ancient Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, ancient Rome. Then you had another major world empire that was early in the tribulation. Antichrist coming with that ten-nation confederacy, he overthrew three of them, becomes a world power. He has a kingdom. It's talked about his kingdom. 
and they're talking about that world, early kingdom. Then Antichrist dies. He gets killed in the middle of the tribulation. The harlot takes over his kingdom. She now is going to become the world ruler, just for a brief time, but she's the world ruler. And then the ten kings get rid of her. They, they oust her, and they have the kingdom, it says in verse 17. They have it but for one hour, for just a brief moment. And one of those that they turn the kingdom over to is one who was, is not, comes again, and he's one of the previous seven. They turn their kingdom over to Antichrist. He's the eighth, eighth major prophetic world leader. And it fits all the, all the different prophecies that you combine them together. And it's not that difficult where you have to guess, well, that's okay. Maybe we should throw Egypt in here. Maybe we should throw another country. This is where biblical prophecy gives us the details and describes it. And you just stick with the biblical prophecy. And you have them. And then the, the ultimate kingdom is Antichrist is defeated and you have the kingdom of God. Okay, that's the ultimate. Where the ancient of days talked about in this verse. And in Daniel chapter 7. That the ancient of days will establish his kingdom for his saints. And that there nobody will take it from them forever. So you, you piece it together and say, you know, this text isn't that difficult. Yes, is there, is there allegory? Yes. Yes, is there figures of speech? Yes. But it's not that hard if you just sit down, put your definitions, what is, what is it implying, and look at the other passages and tie them together, and you say, you know, all these prophecies, they, they don't contradict, they fit hand in glove, and some passages will fill in the different details of other passages and give you a full sense of what's going on in this prophecy. So that's what's happening. Now, where we're at right now, we're between that number four and five as far as our timeline, our historical timeline. We're, we're in that realm of, okay, uh, ancient Rome. In fact, do we have as a Western, uh, Western um, entity, Western world power, if you would, do we have similarities to ancient Rome? Okay, what's our similarities to ancient Rome? Okay, we have government. We have, a re, we have a republic. We have... What else? Are we similar to ancient Roman language? Yeah, yeah, seriously. The romantic languages, the Romanic... You know, okay, take the T out to make it clear to us. The, the European languages are, are, have evolved from the ancient Roman Empire. Our judicial system evolved from the ancient Roman Empire. Our government system even. Did ancient Rome have a Senate? Yes, they did. Did they elect some peoples? Yeah, now their election was different than our election. But by the way, was early American elections different from our elections now? Yeah, in early America, which one, which, what people in this room could vote? Men over the age of 21, who owned property without debt, okay, or mortgage on that property, okay, and, uh, and you, you, you had to have clear title to your property, okay, to be able to do it. And in most of the colonies, you also had to be of a certain religious system, okay? You had to, you had to follow the colonial system before the, before the United States and the uh, Constitution was developed, there was still church-state religion. 
And so we, we look back and say, okay, do, is there some similarities to ancient Rome? Yeah. It's not the same as what we have today. But a lot of what we have today grew out of, evolved out of a lot of that system. And so we are living in that period where there's an ancient Rome influence. Eventually it's going to become Antichrist influence. Ten nations make the treaty. He'll die. Somebody takes over his power for a short time. Then they usurp that. The ten kings will get it back. They'll give it to Antichrist. After he defeats the king of the north, rises again and defeats king of the north. And then he's going to be the last world empire. He'll be the last world king for, those, for the rest of the tribulation. Then what happens? Okay, let's, let's continue this on. Antichrist is in that second half. Now he's in charge. He's, he who wa- was is not, but now he is coming again. He's back. He's in charge. This is when he establishes his universal worship. This is when the mark of the beast comes in. This is when he says, I am God. All of you have to worship me. This is when he's going to be empowered by Satan to the fullest degree. And uh, people at this point, the second three and a half years, this is where they're going to be now totally under his domination, his rule. And if you don't take his mark, this is when it's a life and death situation. During this rule, he is going to set up his new capital city, Babylon, the new Babylon, that many assume it's going to be at that ancient site uh, in that same region where ancient Babylon was. That's going to become his world capital. It is going to be an amazing world capital. It's astounding. Revelation 18 gives us all kinds of information about this capital city and how God at the end of the tribulation will pour out his wrath against that city because that city has become the new world leading city. And it's going to be called the New Babylon. We know as well that he will make war with the saints in the second three and a half years in particular. He's going to fight against the saints. And uh, brings he, he has the conflicts not only in persecution, but the two prophets that God sends. He will kill the two prophets, put their, their bodies out in public and not bury them. Remember now, again, in ancient world, and uh, we'll see it this morning in the message. In ancient world and in some areas of the world even today, if you really want to really disrespect somebody, after they die, don't respect their body. Don't bury their body. Don't give them a proper burial. And so in the ancient mindset, it was very important where they were buried, that they were buried. And so coming from that point of view, this is, this is an amazing situation. To desecrate the bodies is the ultimate, the all, in, in that mindset, it is the ultimate attack or criticism. Towards the end of the tribulation, according to what I already referred to, the uh, city of Babylon, which is going to be the wonder of wonders, the not seven wonders of the world. It'll be the wonder of the world at that time. It's going to be where all the world is, is now doing its economics and it's just a grand city that he, he holds no, no punches in building this city. It's going to be utterly destroyed by God. God is going to attack that city because of what it stands for. Antichrist then will march against Jerusalem. Why? We aren't told. Is he know that God is destroying his city and out of vengeance he's going to wipe out any last vestige of the Jewish people in Jerusalem? Could be. We don't know. It's not explained in the scriptures what motivates him to go to Jerusalem, but there's going, other than demons will be working behind the scenes. 
We are told that the demons in Revelation 16, they will stop the Euphrates. It'll dry it up. They will be manipulating, manipulating world powers. And what happens is the 200 million man army from the east will come. And there's going to be the invasion of Israel. And there's going to be the goal is annihilation of the Jewish people. The great singular battle is going to be in the battle of Armageddon in the valley of Armageddo, and it'll be so much bloodshed. And by the way, there's, they're talking about horses once again, as high as the bridle. Why would a modern army revert back to horses? No oil. No oil. There's going to be, there's, and remember, what's, the armies have been defeated in the, at the three and a half year point. These armies are trying to rebuild, and there's going to be so much worldwide devastation, so they're turning back, and some of their equipment is going to be uh, retrofitted, if you would, and so without that oil, without, without all this, there's going to be this big, big battle. Huge loss of life, tremendous amount. At the height of the battle, Jesus Christ appears in the heaven. And when he appears in the heaven, Antichrist, the ten kings mentioned in this t passage, they will make war on the Lamb. They believe that they can destroy Jesus Christ as he descends from heaven, and Jesus will speak a word, which reminds us of what? When he speaks a word, he destroys everything. When he spoke a word, a word early in history, creation, yeah, and shows his, his power just on display. Here he is. He comes, and Jesus Christ will speak a word, uh, drop all of the enemies, and he takes Antichrist and the false prophet and puts them into the lake of fire. These are the first two to go to the lake of fire. He takes Satan at this moment and puts Satan where? the bottomless pit, okay? Because Satan's going to come back later on. But, lay, but the first two individuals to go on Lake of Fire are Antichrist and uh, the false prophet. And that's when Jesus then sets up his kingdom. Now, we asked this in the middle of last week's session. How could Antichrist, with all that's publicized about him now, all the movies, how does he become so powerful? And some of you said some of these things last week, okay? That people will fear him, that he will use rewards and bribery very effectively. He's empowered by Satan. He's got the help of a lot of different people, including the harlot in the first three and a half years, the ten kings in the second three and a half years, the false prophet in the second three and a half years. So he's got, he's got um, uh, I was going to say able people, and I mean that tongue in cheek. He's got vile people, but they are very skilled people in what they do. They will be supporting him. And our men are anxious. I mean, the bottom line, people will be anxious for some type of help. He, there's the great deception that God will allow. And, um, and I, well, my comment is, we are in a celebrity-minded atmosphere, are we not? We don't necessarily look for character in leadership. True? False? Okay. Is the world today more enamored by popularity, prestige, you know, what have they accomplished, not who they are, or what do they stand for? If they've, if they've just done something spectacular, we, are a, we as a people, we are intrigued by spectacular. Okay? And so this is a time period where there's a lot of spectacular. And so he's the worldwide celebrity. And again, you mentioned last week the strong delusion. Now, he is assisted by a man. This is somebody that's different in Revelation 13. This is the false prophet. He's the guy that does the 666. He's the guy that designs this whole system. He's the brains behind it. He's the brawn behind it. 
He's the one in Revelation 13 that comes to the uh, a limelight. He replaces, and this is interesting, Antichrist has used a religious system to get into power. Okay? And there's, there's cleverness in doing this. There's, you know, rulers typically, they want to be careful what they go with people's religion because it's very personal. People gravitate towards religion, and, which is an innate thing with all people. And, um, and some rulers, like a Napoleon, they, they didn't touch, even though he, was, uh, he himself was not religious. He wasn't going to touch the church in France because he knew if he touched the church, he would arouse you know, um, anti-feelings towards himself. So we'll just we'll play with it. We'll work together with this that I don't believe in, but we'll use them. That's what Antichrist does in the future. He uses the church the religious system. And he's used it effectively to get into power. He will continue to use a religious system to maintain power because religion, if it's used in, a, in an evil way, it can cause great fear in people's hearts. Does that make sense to you? Okay. Do people fear what religions can do to them? You can get people to do anything if they're living in fear. Because religions who claim that they have power over your eternal destiny, they hold you above the flames of hell. People will listen to religious leaders if they feel threatened by this. Right? Okay, and so that's what's going to happen in the end times. Satan will use and work together with this false prophet, who, by the way, false prophet is exalting Antichrist. Antichrist is evil incarnate in the flesh. The designer behind it is Satan, the designer manipulator. False prophet, antichrist, the designer. What does that remind you of? But flip over to totally good and holy, the holy, the holy trinity. The designer, God the Father, Christ in the flesh. The Holy Spirit's job is to point to who? Jesus Christ. Yeah. That's his whole ministry. This is a false trinity that is totally unleashed on humankind without any limitations. We'll pick up next week with a little bit more about this guy and then fill in some other gaps. Thanks for listening.